Hello. Welcome to the Myths and Legends of Europe. Thank you very much for listening to this 2018 re-release of a chapter originally released in my other podcast, The Myths and History of Greece and Rome. I do hope, for those who don't listen to my other podcast, that you're enjoying this series on Greek mythology. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to go to www.mythandhistory.co.uk, which is my new website that covers both of my podcasts. It contains lots of interesting features and a blog, and I think you'll enjoy it. On the site, you'll find a donation button. This podcast, as with my other one, is and always will remain free, but any donations are very gratefully received. You can donate either a one-off amount, or you can donate monthly. There are gifts for anyone who donates, so please go to www.mythandhistory.co.uk to find out what they are. Okay, on with the chapter. Hello, and welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 3, Olympians. Twelve is a number which is often seen to represent a full set of something. There are twelve months in the year, there are twelve signs of the zodiac, there were twelve original titans. Some people try to tell us there were also twelve Olympian gods. The Olympians were the greatest of all the gods, ruling over the rest and ruling over the world of mortals. They were definitely great, but there were more than twelve of them. In order to make a nice comfortable twelve, some people say that Hades was not an Olympian because he lived in the underworld. They also say that when Dionysus arrived on the scene, then Hestia retired. This is not the way the ancient Greeks saw it. In the next two chapters, we will meet the Olympians and hear a little of their stories. So, who should we meet first? Well, we have already met Zeus, so we should get to know the other children of Kronos. We will meet most of them now, in the order in which they were born, and then eaten. Hestia was the goddess of the hearth, which was the fire at the centre of every home. She invented the art of building houses, and was worshipped by the Greeks in their homes and all the temples of all the gods. She was peaceful and never took part in any of the battles or wars, just preferring to stay in Olympus and mind her own business. Hestia never married or had any children. The next in the family was Demeter. She was much more involved in the actions of the gods and the mortals than her sister. She was the goddess of the cornfield and the giver of bread and grain, so she had the power over the food of the mortals and life on earth. She taught mankind how to sow and plough so they could grow food. She was gentle and kind, rarely becoming angry or punishing anyone. Demeter, though, was very fond of her trees and plants. Many olive groves and trees were planted for her, and she kept a close eye on them. If her trees were ever treated badly, then she interfered to save them, and was prepared to punish anyone who wouldn't stop, as a man called Eristichtion found out. Eristichtion and twenty friends started to cut down some of Demeter's sacred trees in a grove at Dotium. The goddess turned herself into the priestess of the grove and told the silly man, very nicely, to stop cutting down the trees. Eristichtion, very stupidly, took no notice. Worse than this, he took out an axe and threatened her. At this, Demeter revealed who she really was, and Eristichtion knew he was in trouble. The punishment was terrible. The poor man was made to be eternally hungry. It didn't matter how much he ate, he could never feel full. He ate, and he ate, and he ate, until he'd spent all the money that he and his family had. He became a beggar in the streets, and was still always hungry. Before long, he could get no more food, and he began to eat his own flesh. 
Eventually, of course, he ate an important internal organ and died. Demeter had three children. Plutus was the god of wealth, although Zeus blinded him so he often gave wealth to those who didn't deserve it. Her other children were called Iacchus and Persephone, and it is the story of Persephone for which Demeter is best known. The problem for Persephone was that someone fell in love with her. Now, this doesn't sound like a particularly bad thing, except that the someone was Hades. It wasn't that Hades himself was particularly unpleasant, it was simply that he was the god of the dead, and Persephone didn't fancy an eternity in the underworld. Hades asked Zeus if he could marry her, which put the king of the gods in a bit of a sticky situation. On the one hand, he didn't want to annoy his big brother by just saying no. On the other hand, if he said yes, then big sister Demeter was going to be very cross. He told Hades he wasn't saying yes or no. Hades decided that this really meant yes, so he made his plans. Persephone loved flowers and spent time with her friends gathering them from meadows. Hades lay in wait. Persephone spotted a particularly beautiful Narcissus and reached out with both hands to pick it up. As she bent down, a huge chasm opened up in the ground and outroared Hades on his golden chariot. He grabbed the poor girl and carried her, screaming, off to the underworld. Demeter heard her cries and immediately went looking for her daughter. For nine days and nine nights, Demeter searched for Persephone, but she couldn't find her. On the tenth day, the heartbroken goddess arrived in Eleusius, where she was taken in by King Chelios and his wife. For a year she stayed with them, nursing their young son Demophon, who she began to make immortal. When she was there, she learned the truth about Persephone from a shepherd who had seen what happened. She was furious and summoned the goddess Hecate. Together, they went to see the sun god Helios, who, of course, sees everything that happens when it is daytime. Helios wasn't too keen on telling the truth. After all, Hades was Zeus's brother. Eventually, though, he admitted what he had seen. Demeter was hopping mad. She roamed the earth, forbidding the trees from bearing fruit or the crops from growing. Mankind began to starve. Now, this was a tricky one for Zeus. First, he summoned Demeter back to Olympus, but she just refused to go. Next, he sent some of the Olympians, who brought loads of nice presents, to talk to his sister, but she wouldn't listen. Zeus knew he couldn't let all of the mortals die, so he did the only thing left for him to do. The king of the gods sent Hermes to the underworld to talk to Hades and persuade him to let Persephone go. Hades was very unhappy about this, but he said she could go, providing she had not tasted the food of the dead. Persephone mounted Hermes' chariot and was about to leave, when one of the gardeners of the underworld shouted he'd seen Demeter's daughter eat some pomegranate seeds. Demeter was overjoyed to see her daughter, but when she heard about the seeds, she was overwhelmed with sadness. She refused to allow the food to grow if Persephone was forced to return to the underworld. Zeus scratched his head, and then used all of his powers of persuasion to find a way round the problem. It was agreed that Persephone would spend one quarter of the year with Hades and reign as Queen of the Dead. For the other nine months, she would be allowed to return to Olympus and live happily with her mother. Demeter agreed and let the food grow once more. For the three months that Persephone was forced to live in the underworld, though, Demeter stopped the crops going. These three months became the months of winter, when, to this day, nothing planted in the ground will grow. The third daughter of Cronos was, of course, Hera, who became Zeus's last wife. Their marriage was not a great one. 
Although they remained married for eternity, they constantly argued, and Zeus frequently went to one of his girlfriends rather than staying with his poor wife. This made Hera jealous, and she often had her revenge, both on him and on the girlfriend. There are many tales about Hera's jealousy, and we will hear some of them later, but we will tell one of them now, so that we get to know a little bit more about the wife of Zeus. There was a nymph named Callisto that Zeus took a liking to. Callisto was a friend of the Olympian goddess Artemis, and they often went hunting together. Zeus, being Zeus, changed his appearance and appeared to Callisto, looking exactly like Artemis. She didn't realise who he was. Nine months later, Callisto gave birth to their baby son, who was named Arcas. Artemis was unhappy about the birth and banished Callisto from her group of friends. Hera was furious. She grabbed Callisto by the hair and threw her to the ground and turned her into a bear. The bear ran off into the wood. Hermes rescued the baby, who was brought up by his mother Maia. Arcas grew up into a great hunter. Callisto lived in the woods as a bear for fifteen years. One day, when Arcas was hunting in the woods, Callisto stumbled into a clearing and saw her son. She tried to call out softly to him, but she was a bear, and all that came out was a menacing growl. Arcas raised his spear and was about to kill the bear, when Zeus, who must have realised the whole thing was his fault, took pity on them both. He immortalised them both in the heavens. Callisto became the constellation Ursa Major, the Great Bear, and Arcas became the little bear, or Ursa Minor. Despite the difficulties in her own marriage, Hera was the goddess of marriage and childbirth. She was worshipped in many temples all over Greece. Hera's brother Poseidon was also worshipped in many temples all over the Greek world. Poseidon was god of the seas. He had been given rule of the seas when the sons of Kronos decided who would rule where. Like both of his brothers, he could be kind and friendly, but he could become violently angry. When Poseidon was angry, everyone knew about it, because his anger came in the form of tidal waves, floods, terrible storms and earthquakes. He became known as the Earthshaker. Poseidon spent a long time trying to find a wife. He was pretty keen on the Nereids, which was handy because there were quite a lot of them. The Nereids were the grandchildren of the original sea god Pontus and Gaia. They were beautiful women who lived in the Mediterranean Sea. They had the gift of prophecy, they often helped sailors, and there were fifty of them, so Poseidon had a pretty good chance of persuading one of them to be his wife. First, he tried a Nereid called Thetis, but then he changed his mind. And why did he change his mind? Was Thetis not as beautiful as the other Nereids? Well, actually, yes she was, but the titan Themis promised that any child of Thetis would end up being greater than his father. Poseidon, of course, was not going to let this happen, so he let Thetis marry a mortal called Peleus. The prophecy, of course, was correct. Thetis and Peleus had only one child. He was named Achilles, and he was destined to become one of the heroes of the Trojan War. Poseidon then set his sights on another Nereid called Amphitrite. Unlike Thetis, she wasn't too keen on marrying the angry sea god, and she ran away to the Atlas Mountains and hid. Poseidon didn't use his big brother's tactics and simply kidnap the poor girl. He sent a dolphin to speak with Amphitrite and tell her how great it would be to be married to the great sea god. It seems the dolphin was a very persuasive animal, because the Nereid agreed to the wedding. Poseidon was so pleased he made the dolphin immortal and placed him in the skies where we now see him as the constellation Delphinus. There were three children of the marriage. One of them, Rhoda, married the sun god Helios. 
Helios had an island in the Mediterranean which was his own personal property and Rhoda became its protector. Can you guess what the island was called? Yes, of course, the island was called Rhodes. Triton, who had the upper body of a man and the tail of a fish, constantly rode the waves on the back of sea monsters, carrying a twisted conch shell. Sometimes he blew the shell gently and the sea was calm. Sometimes he blew hard on the shell and the sea was stormy and rough. Poseidon and Amphitrite lived in a magnificent golden palace. Their marriage was a bit like that of Zeus and Hera, because Poseidon, like his brother, was always finding other girlfriends and Amphitrite was de jealous. One poor girl, named Scylla, who Poseidon was chasing, suffered badly at the hands of the Queen of the Seas. When Amphitrite found out, she threw magical herbs into Scylla's bathing pool. The herbs turned her into a barking monster with six heads and twelve feet. We will probably meet the other child of Kronos in Chapter 5, when we explore the domain of Hades, the underworld. Before we end this chapter, though, we will meet two more of the older Olympians. Aphrodite was created from the blood of Uranus, and so was older than the children of Kronos. She was the goddess of love and the giver of beauty. Given that she was the goddess of love, she fell in love quite often herself. She was married to another Olympian, Hephaestus, but had many boyfriends. It is not just the male gods like Zeus and Poseidon who are inclined to make their partners jealous. Aphrodite had a bit of an advantage over most of the goddesses and women because she had a magic girdle which could make anyone fall in love with her. Sometimes she would lend it to the other goddesses, particularly Hera, but more often she would refuse. Aphrodite's favourite was the Olympian Ares, who was god of war. Together they had three children, Phobos, Deimos and Harmonia. Hephaestus was very annoyed when Helios, who as we know could see everything, told him he had seen Aphrodite and Ares together. Hephaestus planned a trick to catch them in the act. He was the blacksmith of the gods and could make virtually anything out of metal. He made a very fine hunting net from bronze and set it up in Aphrodite's room. Hephaestus pretended he was going on a trip to the island of Lemnos and then sat down and waited. Sure enough, Aphrodite and Ares were caught in the net when they met. Hephaestus called all the gods together to have a laugh at the two entangled Olympians. The other goddesses refused to come, but the gods did, and all of them thought it was hilarious. Apollo nudged Hermes, and they sniggered and joked. Hephaestus turned to Zeus and asked him to force Aphrodite to give back the gifts he'd given her for their wedding. Ares was told that he must pay. Ares said that he would, and Poseidon said he'd make sure it happened. Zeus decided he'd punish the goddess of love for making so many of the gods fall in love with her, and so he made her fall in love with a mortal. The mortal in question was not a king or prince, though. He was a simple cowherd. Aphrodite fell madly in love with the shepherd, and they had a son called Aeneas. We will meet him again when we learn about the Trojan War. She also fell in love with a handsome young mortal known as Adonis. Aphrodite is sometimes thought of as the mother of Eros, the god of love, although there are actually many stories about how Eros came into being. Eros was a mischievous god, who thought it was funny to get gods and mortals to fall in love with each other. He used his magic bow to shoot arrows of love into the hearts of the mortals. He loved to watch the chaos that sometimes followed. Eros was taught a lesson, though, when Aphrodite became jealous of the beauty of a young mortal woman called Psyche. Aphrodite asked Eros to shoot his arrow into the heart of Psyche and make her fall in love with the ugliest man on earth. He agreed to carry out his mother's wishes, but when he saw Psyche... 
Eros fell deeply in love with her. He would visit her every night, but he made himself invisible by telling Psyche not to have any light in her room. Psyche fell in love with Eros even though she could not see him. Unfortunately, one night she decided she did want to see him, so she hid a lamp, and while Eros slept she lit it and looked at him sleeping. A drop of hot oil spilt from the lamp, awakening the god. Eros was very angry that she had seen him, and fled. The desperately sad Psyche roamed the earth trying to find her love. In the end, Zeus took pity and reunited them. He also gave them consent to marry. Finally for today, let's meet the goddess Athena. We have seen how she was born when Hephaestus split Zeus's skull and she came out fully grown. Athena was the goddess of war, but also of many other things. Unlike Ares, she didn't get pleasure from war and fighting, and she planned the use of war only when necessary. During times of peace, she had no weapons, and often had to borrow weapons from Zeus when she needed them. Athena was merciful and fair. If she was sitting in judgment with the other gods at a criminal trial, and the gods couldn't agree if the accused was guilty, Athena would vote to let the person go free. Athena also invented musical instruments, like the flute and the trumpet. She made the first chariots and ships, and earthenware pots. She was the goddess of handicrafts. She taught how to sew and weave, and also how to make things out of wood and metal. Athena was seen as the personification of intelligence and wisdom, and invented the skill of working with numbers, which we now call mathematics. She really does seem to have been a very useful goddess to have around. Like Hestia, Athena never married and had no children. She was, though, far more involved in the world of men than the eldest daughter of Cronos. Athena was not a vengeful god, and if she ever punished anyone, she generally let them off later. Only once did she let jealousy get the better of her. Athena was very proud of her abilities in crafts. She became angry when a girl called Arachne, a princess of Lydia, demonstrated she was so good at weaving that she was better than the goddess herself. Athena was shown a beautiful cloth which Arachne had woven, filled with depictions of the Olympians. She searched and searched for a fault in it, but it was perfect. Athena was filled with rage, and Arachne was so terrified that she ran away and hanged herself. Athena was instantly sorry, and she turned the girl into a spider and the rope into a cobweb so that Arachne could climb to safety. Our name for spiders, Arachnids, comes from Arachne. Athena was the patron goddess of many cities in Greece. There is one, though, which will always be linked with her. During the reign of King Krikops, Poseidon and Athena argued about who should be patron of his capital city. Poseidon challenged Athena to single combat. She agreed, but Zeus said they must solve the problem peacefully. It was decided they should have a contest to see who could give the city the greatest gift. Poseidon created a well flowing with water, so the people would always have water to drink. Athena planted an olive tree, so the people would always have food, and also precious olive oil. The gods voted on who had given the most valuable gift, and Athena won by a single vote. Athena became patron of the city. A later king, called Erechtonius, who was the son of Hephaestus, built temples to worship Athena. Hephaestus invented the four-horse chariot for Erechtonius to use to help him get around, as the poor boy had a lower body of a snake. Erechtonius frequently protected the honour of Athena, and she rewarded him by placing him in the sky, where he became the constellation of Auriga, the charioteer. And what was the name of the city of which Athena became patron? Athens, of course. Next week, 
we will look at some of the other Olympian gods. Until then, have a good week and speak to you next time.